Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Through Their Eyes, our special series featuring Utah teenagers discussing current events on Utah's Morning News with Tim and Amanda. Such a pleasure to sit down again with three of Utah's young people and ask them, what do you think about the issues of the day and how do you understand what's going on in the world? And this week, I am delighted to welcome back to the program, Mirabella is here with Dallin and John. Welcome, welcome to all three of you. There is a lot to talk about, so I'm going to dive right in. And with your permission, I want to ask you about the New Hampshire primary, but I want to tell our listeners, particularly our podcast listeners, who will be able to hear this in its entirety, that we are recording this program on the day of the New Hampshire primary, so we don't know the results. Um, But the field is an interesting one. I think all three of you would agree. So let's talk about it from whatever uh, point of view you'd like to. With your permission, may I start with you, Dallin? How do you see the field? Yeah, I I think the Democratic field right now actually says a lot about the Democratic Party's future. You know, the Democrats are kind of asking themselves the question right now, how is it that we are going to respond to losing to Donald Trump in 2016? And right now, there's kind of two paths that they can take. They can follow Bernie and Warren and go even further to the left than they've ever been before, or they can go for more moderate candidates like Biden or, or even possibly Buttigieg and end up going, you know, more to the, the basis, the establishment that they've had before. And, and this is really the problem the Democratic Party has right now. They're not unified. They're split along these lines. There's about equal support for both sides of things divvied up among the candidates. And it's right now, you know, it's obviously too too, too soon to tell. But looking like the Democrats are going to have a very even race with no clear candidate, making it really hard, you know, in the general election to face off against a candidate who's, you know, swept every other candidate. You know, an incumbent president's pretty powerful against a party who's not sure who it is they support or which idea it is that they want to champion right now. Do you have a feeling uh, for who would be the strongest challenger to Donald Trump? Personally, I think Joe Biden is the most fit to face off against Donald Trump because I think he's the most established you know, part of that establishment group. I think the reason Donald Trump won in 2016 wasn't because of the people on the fringes of the political spectrum. It was the people in the middle. And I think, you know, no matter how far you go in either direction, you're going to lose those people in the middle. And so I think, you know, Biden's status is more of a middle ground candidate equips him to be able to best face off against Donald Trump ideologically. Now, whether or not he could hold up in the debates, stuff like that is a lot more questionable. Mm. Mirabelle, what's your thought? Okay, so I recently read this really fascinating New York Times survey where the New York Times went all around the United States and asked Democratic voters what was the number one thing and issue that they found in the Democratic 2020 
presidential election. And the number one issue that all of these Democratic voters thought was who can beat President Trump. And I thought that was fascinating, especially because it's create this created this really interesting phenomenon where voters in like California now really care about what voters in Pennsylvania are going to vote for because they care about what these swing states really care about because they're looking for someone who can beat President Trump. And the swing states are essential in beating President Trump. And so it was so interesting because in this survey, these voters from California were like, you know, if Pennsylvania is going to go with Buttigieg, then I'll go with Buttigieg. If Pennsylvania's going to go with Biden, I'll go with Biden. If Pennsylvania is going to go with Yang, I'll go with Yang. And I thought that was so interesting because it's really become this race of like not necessarily values or policies anymore, rather than like who is going to be the name for our party. And I think that's really fascinating. It's as if their desire to win is more important, perhaps, than the underlying policy. Is that what I hear exactly. you saying? Mm-hmm. May I ask you the same question that, that I asked Dallin? Who do you think would be uh, the, the Democratic candidate who would have the best chance against President Trump? I, I would agree that it would be Joe Biden. I think being a moderate who appeals to all of the Democratic voters, people from Pennsylvania who maybe are Democratic but have certain policies like fracking, for example, that are maybe more Republican-leaning and policies that Trump agree with, with um, having a moderate candidate appeals to those people. And because it appeals to them, it also appeals to maybe the more progressive people in California. Yeah. John, what do you think? You know, this is a really interesting, interesting subject. For me, really what it comes down to is who, who is going to be Donald Trump. And frankly, I don't want to be rude here, but I don't think people as far left as Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren really have a chance. And so I think that the Democrats are really going to need to get unified and pretty quick here. The the election is coming up in just nine months. And if they're, they need to get unified behind someone who is in the middle, like, like Mirabella and Dallin were talking about, I would also be looking for people like, like Michael Bloomberg, as well as Joe Biden, um, and maybe even Pete Buttigieg. Mm. Um, in fact, it was interesting that they, uh, New Hampshire has this curious uh, tradition where there's this teeny little town that c- conducts the very first vote right after midnight. And there are only five people who live in this teeny little town. And of the five, three wrote in the name Michael Bloomberg. Two were uh, Democrats. One was a Republican. And they wrote in. He, he didn't. Qual- he wasn't on the ballot. They wrote in his name. And now this, of course, is, is not any kind of, a, of an indication of anything. There are only five people who live in this teeny little town. But it's, it's a curious question as to we don't know at this early stage, only having had two uh, contests so far, what kind of a role Michael Bloomberg will play. Do you see him playing any kind of a significant role? Yeah, yeah. I can see him as a front runner that's going to be somewhere in the middle, that's going to be able to unify the Democratic Party and then be a substantial challenger to Donald Trump. Now, I'm in favor of Donald Trump over any of the Democratic candidates, but I see Michael Bloomberg definitely as being a front runner, um, especially when we get up to Super Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Fascinating conversation. Would you like to add anything else, anyone, before we move on? Appreciate your political perspective. Um, I'd like to move on to ask you about, this is a question about education. Of course, uh, all three of you are. May I ask what grade you're in, first of all? I'm a junior. Junior? I'm a junior. Junior? I'm also a junior. Junior. All three juniors. Okay. Um, When I was reading about this, and this I think had to do with, was it West Wendover? I think it was West Wendover, uh, who were considering, and this has happened, I believe, in other schools in the state of Utah already, considering taking on a four-day school week 
for a number of reasons. I'll start with you on this one, John. Is a four-day school week a good idea um, when they have these considerations like trying to compete to keep teachers in the schools and things like that in these more rural school districts. What are your thoughts? Honestly, I think it's a great idea. I think it opens even more educational opportunities to those students that they might not otherwise be able to get. Um, things such as I, I was out of school on Monday and I, I went outside and built an igloo. I mean, how many people are, are able to do that? And so I think these four-day school weeks are is a great idea to be able to open other opportunities for students to go out and, and learn and grow and not just be stuck in the classroom uh, all the entire week long. Yeah. My only hesitation, and I want to, I guess my follow-up question is to you, are students going to take those opportunities to learn or will they miss out on learning by having one fewer day a week? And honestly, that's going to have to be a personal decision for them and what they're going to decide to do with their life. Personally, I would love to go out and study by myself and and learn things that I'm interested in versus the classes that I might just be forced to take. But really, it comes down to a personal decision. Where do you want to go with your life? And if you're going to use that time wisely, then great for you. If not, then, well, you should. So Yeah, this is where parents come into play, too, I imagine. Mirabel, what is your thought? I actually really love this idea because I think it's confirm, conf, excuse me, conforming along with the idea of what true education is. And it's not this hardline idea of education of like, we have to spend so many hours on this and we have to get certain test scores because I don't think that is what real education is. And I think when we have this idea and this ability to relax and to be able to prioritize maybe I know I have plenty of I actually do school online so I don't have personal experience going to like a five-day school week but a lot of my peers do and they say again and again that so often at school they feel like they're just wasting time they're spending hours on things when they're not actually being productive and by allowing us and allowing schools to have this four-day school week it allows kids to be like John said a little more independent and it allows them to have that break time and it also allows them just to really explore what real education is mm-hmm. do, do you agree now my thought on the subject is that the four-day school week is a great thing for this particular school and this particular context I understand that they need to get teachers into their school and they're having trouble competing with other schools that, you know, also have the four-day school week and why teach for five days when you could teach four. You know, so I, I definitely see that perspective for this school, but I feel like there's so many different directions we could take this. You know, I, I was talking with some people this morning about it and, you know, what if the fifth day was something where they went and interned or had a job on that day and the school was keeping touch with that? I think that accountability to an actual program or even that monetary incentive is going to get these people involved in something that is going to be beneficial and I get them involved in something that is productive, something they can tailor to their own education, but not totally turning it totally free reign. Because I don't know about the rest of you, but when I think of a whole bunch of kids who have nothing to do at home all day, when it comes to an entire city, I, I do think of a lot of kids probably getting in trouble. You know, that, that's just kind of what happens. And so I think, you know, maybe instead of getting rid of the school day entirely, we just change it up. So maybe the teachers don't have to be there the whole time, but the students are still doing something where it requires them to be engaged in some sort of activity throughout that day. That's interesting. I wonder if they even considered that. And if not, they should. <laughs> That's really interesting. Um, any more on that subject before I move on? All right, I'm going to ask you, here's the doozy uh, of 
the week, perhaps. And, and I want you to discuss this in any way you want to for as long as you want to, because there are so many subtopics on this one. Um, this is about Senator Romney and his decision to uh, vote for the one article of impeachment about abuse of, of power. Uh, since that time, of course, the response to Senator Romney's decision has been profound from both sides of the aisle. I mean, there are people here in the state of Utah who want to censure him, who want, you know, he was uninvited from CPAC because the leader of CPAC, I think, if I remember the story correctly, was concerned for his safety. Um, who who wants to start? Who haven't I started with yet? Was it you, Talon? Or was it you, Mirabel? Who haven't I started with? Was it you? I can't remember. Was it you, John? John. Yeah. Was it you, Dallin? My brain is... <laughs> I'm not remembering cor- correctly. Who who wants to start? John. All right. So first and foremost, I do disagree with Romney on this issue. Um, and it's for a couple of reasons. First, I think it's, it's reasonable um, that Mike Lee and Senator Romney can come to different conclusions. I think that's perfectly okay. But that being said, I do have an issue with the reasons that Mr. Romney decided on on the decision that he did Um, because in his oath of office it states that he's going to support and defend the constitution of the united states Um, and it says nothing about supporting and uh, upholding his own conscience um, which sounds kind of wrong Um, but i saw no crimes or high crimes or misdemeanors in president trump's actions Um, and when we start to use when we start to use impeachment as simply a partisan tool then it's kind of like putting out a candle with a fire hose and it just doesn't make any sense and it divides our country even more. Furthermore, it also negates the power of elections. If the American people don't want President Trump to be their president anymore, then I think it should be up to them to decide that at the ballot box. Um, so I, I didn't agree with, um, with Senator Romney's decision, also because it throws shade on, I feel like, the rest of the state of Utah, um, and especially Senator Mike Lee, because it seems like I personally think President Trump did nothing wrong, but Mr. Romney is now seen as this, this figure who stood for truth and righteousness, but I also, I'm, I'm a member of the same church that he is, and I think I came to a different decision, so I think it costs a bad judgment on the entire state of Utah. And it really didn't represent my values. Mm, interesting. What, what do you think? Yeah. When it came to this topic, I had to go to Mitt Romney's words, you know, see how he justified his vote. And I think the way you interpret his words is very, very important. Um, you know, specifically, like, you know, referring to his faith. A lot of people have accused him as using his faith as a crutch when it came to this or, or claiming that his faith demanded that he vote that way. And I don't interpret his words that way. I interpret his words as, you know, saying his faith was the reason that he had to stick that to that oath, no matter what his party wanted him to vote. And so for that reason, you know, I, I don't think he was being disingenuous or, you know, using religion improperly. I think he was, you know, acting as he had sworn to, you know, in, in the oath for that trial to uphold bipartisan justice. And, you know, I think that's especially important in this election, you know, or, you know, when it comes to this whole impeachment issue, you know, one of the the arguments of Trump's defense was, you know, let's turn it over to the general election, let the people decide. But then I think we should just ask ourselves, then why is there an impeachment process in the first place? You think our founding fathers, you know, they were all for the people being the check on government, right? But if that was the check on government, why is there an impeachment process? And that's where I think this argument just falls through. 
Our founding fathers put the impeachment process in there for a reason. They put it in there because they knew that the people had to be the check always. But they also knew that there needed to be another way that our senators and our Congress could get involved and stop the president from acting, you know, high crimes. And this brings us to the next argument of the Trump defense. You know, it's not statutory law. How could it be a high crime? And my response to that is... So our Congress is going to go and list every single possible way the president could abuse his power. One, that's not possible. And two, I just don't think it's reasonable. You know, if we refer to the text that the founding fathers themselves produced, I think Federalist 65 is a resource. I would refer anybody who wants to look into this further too. Federalist 65 refers to political crimes, you know, abusing what will happen like we're putting our people in danger, damaging the election system just like what President Trump was doing, investigating Joe Biden. And look, I understand what happened in Ukraine was fishy. Burisma, it's fishy. I, pro- I want to look into that. But I think the timing of all this is extremely suspect. I remember just days before the phone call happened, I watched this interview. George Stephanopoulos and Donald Trump spent a day together. And George Stephanopoulos is asking Donald Trump all these questions. You know, how do you feel about Biden beating you in the polls? And, and Trump goes, uh, he's not. Asks his aides, and he is. And happenstance, he ends up calling President Zelensky later about, you know, this this awful, terrible thing happening with Joe Biden. It's real nasty. You should look into that. I think that phrasing in a phone call between international leaders is extremely suspect and fishy. Mm. And so I do think it was an abuse of power. So, Mirabella, do you come down with John or do you come down with Dallin? You know, this is such a hard topic. And honestly, I don't know how I feel about Senator Romney as Utah senator. I don't know if I would have voted for him as Utah senator. But when I look at politicians and the number one thing I look for in politicians and the number one thing I perhaps admire in politicians is someone who does the things they do and makes the choices they make because they believe it's the right thing who isn't swayed by the popular vote and who doesn't do things so that they can get back in office. And I think Senator Romney's decision to vote against President Trump is an example of this because it was a very unpopular decision. It's put a lot of steam on him. There's a bill that I was reading about in here in the Utah Senate that is essentially allowing voters to recall a senator. And it didn't have a lot of uh, backup before this vote. But after Senator Romney voted against President Trump, it's picked up a lot of steam. And so for me, even though I'm not sure how I would have voted for the impeachment, I don't know if I would have voted against Trump or for Trump. I honestly have no idea. I do greatly respect Senator Romney's decision to vote against President Trump simply because it was an unpopular decision and because I really do truly believe that it was him trying to do the right thing and trying to uphold what he believed were the right values and the right thing to do. Mm. Any other any other thoughts on this topic? All right. Uh, this is uh, Through Their Eyes on KSL News Radio. Back in just a moment. This week on Through Their Eyes, in studio with me, Mirabella is here with Dallin and John. And I wanted to ask you, uh, I guess, what is um, a question that, that you can uniquely answer um, because... Uh, of your age and because of our concern about this issue with your age, our being uh, your parents. Um, I was reading this week about how there are some teachers and others who are showing teenagers and young people diseased lungs. 
in the hopes that showing them this gross, you know, lung tissue that's, you know, tissue from former smokers, former vapors, in the hopes that showing them that will keep them from smoking, will keep them from vaping. And my question is, uh, what can we do, John? Is it that? Is it what can we do to make vaping and smoking not cool. I thought we had made so much progress, and it feels like we have slid back down. Any thoughts on this topic? Yeah, yeah. So I was I was actually reading the article about this and looking at some of the pictures, and I'll be honest, I was kind of scared by them. <laughs> it was kind of well, kinda good. Gross. That shows us that, that but, they're working a little bit. Yeah, it, exactly. Um, and I think that that's an excellent way to to discourage people. Say this is the consequence of the decision you make, and it's not a good one. But I also think that we need to turn to family responsibility. The ma- the majority of kids who are getting into vape, it's sometimes their parents who are introducing that to them. So we need to ma- make sure that we're educating families as well as the the kids that are getting introduced to vape on how to control this, how the signs if their kid is vaping and hiding it from them. So I think that that's an excellent way of discouraging vape, but we also should turn to families um, and have parents enforcing this as well. Is there? Do you have any thoughts at all on how to make it not cool? And I think that showing them diseased lungs is an excellent way. If that's what happens to your lungs, I, I'm never going to vape. Like, I'm scarred for life. Yeah. Um, so I think that's really honestly a great way to do it. But okay. also we need, to, we need to change the way society views that. Um, and that, I think, media campaigns would be a great idea to, way to do that. Yeah. yeah. What, what do you think, Mirabelle? When I saw this article, I was like, oh, my gosh, oh, I love this because I love that idea that it's teaching a new generation. It's raising a new generation to make informed decisions. I read a study the other day that was really interesting, and it talked about the chemical reaction that happens in children's brains and especially teenagers' brains when they're forced to do something or they're given restrictions. And the chemical reaction that happens in their brains like literally leads them to rebel. Like They literally can't not rebel rebel against okay, this. I, I need to, I, will you send that to me? Yes, I will That's find fascinating. it. Um, it was an interesting, interesting I think, I think all of my children are having this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm struggling with this myself. Um, but the reason why that was so fascinating to me is because a lot of politicians in a lot of ways were trying to approach this issue of vaping is to put restrictions and bans on it and to try and, you know, force these kids to not participate in it. But what was really going to facilitate change and really going to make a difference is to respect these people and to respect these kids and be like, look, if you knew the problems and if you were educated, you would make an informed decision and you would make a correct decision if you were educated and understood. And so I love this idea of trying to create informed decisions. It's, it's, it's respectful. It's respectful. Exactly. What do you say, Dylan? Yeah, there's actually an interesting study that's, you know, kind of the statistical side of all this that I saw. Uh, It's from the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, and it found that, you know, adolescents who perceived greater risk in, you know, binge drinking alcohol, you know, as that trend went upward, so more of them see it as dangerous, less of them started doing it. And, you know, so obviously this, this is binge drinking alcohol, not exactly the same thing as vaping or whatever. And, and it's also from, you know, a couple of years ago. But I think this shows us exactly the problem. When people are more informed about what vaping does to them, they're a whole lot less likely to do it. And, and actually, this has been backed up by my personal experience. I, you know, I've, I, I do a program called Youth Court. So I work with these kids who, who are vaping. And every time someone comes into our court for vaping, we always have them do some sort of educational thing, whether that's an online packet, writing an essay about the effects of it. And I can't tell you how many times they're like, oh, my gosh, I didn't know this. Like, 
whoa, <laughs> this is totally going to change all the things that I want to be able to do in my life. It could stop me. So that's kind of the first thing, you know, like the, the, the statistical side of things. And then the second thing is like, you know, the culture side of things. I think John made a really good point that the reason this is cool isn't just the kids themselves. It's their older brothers, their uncles, their friends, the people they're getting it from who they look up to who are vaping. Kid, I, my husband and I were talking. We were watching a show the other day on, I can't remember if it's Netflix or, or Amazon Prime. Literally every character in the show smokes. And I, I, I was, I felt angry because I thought if my kids are, or, or, or every kid, every person watching this show, if they, now I'm too, too old to be, you know, idolizing and, and picking up even more bad habits than I have when I was younger, but, but I could see a young person idolizing or developing some sort of thought like that about these very hip, cool characters in this show when every single character, and I felt like I wanted to write to the producers and say, was it absolutely necessary that in addition to all the other bad habits that these characters had that they that they smoked? I realized in that time frame that 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 this that this show is set, more people smoke than they do now. But was it absolutely necessary because these kinds of visuals will have an effect on people? I don't know. Am I am I naive in thinking that Hollywood and other kinds of producers could have some sort of conscious effect? Not at all. I, I don't think you're naive in saying that at all. I think, you know, Hollywood definitely has a role to play in this. I do think the greater role, though, is from those personal connections. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, I, like, you know, we it's a lot harder to influence those personal connections than it is to influence Hollywood. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Anybody else? Any other thoughts? I want to move on to a, a topic that I thought was this is sort of a First Amendment question, I think. Um, you've all seen these license plates, um, these vanity plates. You know, they'll have people's names on them or whatever. And there was, a, 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 I guess, a, a recent decision that um, said that a particularly offensive plate was not allowed in the state of Utah. And here's my question. Should the state be allowed to control offensive vanity license plates? And Mirabella, I'm saying the word offensive in quotes because my question to you is who decides what's offensive? What do you make of this story? For me, it really does come down to that First Amendment issue. Like, is a vanity license plate an expression of free speech? And I believe that it is in much the same way a political bumper sticker is an expression of free speech. And I think another issue that comes up is, like you were saying, if the state has the power to to what's the right word to say this to. Issue issue since they're issuing it, they're engaged, they're involved in the speech. Exactly. And if they have the power to limit license plates that are, quote unquote, offensive, that opens the door to very vague definitions. For example, I saw yesterday this cute little mom driving this big van full of kids and her license plate said kid taxi. And I thought that was so cute and adorable. But someone else could view that license plate as derogatory towards women because it implies that women's job is just to drive children around. And so should the state not be allowed to give this cute little mom a really funny license plate that she thinks is fun and I just it doesn't seem helpful and it doesn't seem I guess for me it's I do think love license plate the article 
talked about a license plate that said deport them. Mm-hmm. And I think that is offensive. I would not have a license plate that said that. But it comes down to, I think it was Thomas Paine who talked about how government has to entertain necessary evils so that it doesn't become too restrictive and too limiting. And I think these vanity license plates are an example of So that. would you allow the F word on a license plate? You know, oh, that's there's so no way. Hard. There's no way. I can't imagine you're allowing that on the license plate if you had kids in the car. If you're the state of Utah, are you issuing a license plate with the F word on the license plate? You know, I feel like the state should be allowed to allow that as much as I hate that and as much as I would not want that or want like a car to have that on that. I just it again comes back to the idea of the necessary evils like the state just has to allow some things so that they're not too restrictive and they're not opening this door to vague definitions. Mm, What do you say, Dallin? I want to start this discussion with a little bit of information I found. It's a study actually from like 2008. I think it was the University of Chicago in Illinois. Point is, the study goes to find, you know, people who have road rage. How can you identify them on the road? And they found that the more bumper stickers a car had, the more likely that person was to experience road rage and use their car to express that road gauge by tailgating, following, honking, you know, all of the above, right? So with that in mind, I think it's pretty interesting that, you know, personalized license plates, I think, sure fall in the category of visible markers that make people more likely to have road rage. I think it's because people are, like, you know, starting to connect themselves to their car, personalize it a bit more. I don't think that we should be able to have, you know, I'm just going to come out and say no personalized license plates. The reason for that, I feel weird saying that because I'm, like, the biggest free free speech guy I know. But the, the problem with that is free speech is all about having good discussion. And there's no seven-letter discussion on a political issue that's actually going to be able to be productive. I don't think this is going to you know, set a precedent where we're going to go silence all sorts of other important speech. Because I think you – know, I, I don't even know like if in the first place if someone had pitched the idea of personalized license plates, I would have been in favor. Because while it's fun, while it can be cute, it's just not worth the issues it brings up. It's not a real form for discussion. I don't see any free speech problems with silencing it and just shutting it down and saying, all right, look, the roads are a place to be safe. Driving is a privilege. I don't want anybody distracted by what's on the back of your car. Let's just make everyone safer and everyone happier by putting discussion where discussion belongs and personalization where personalization belongs. John. I've got to agree with Dallin. It's either all or nothing for this. I think it's a really slippery slope. If we're going to start limiting some license plates, then are we going to start limiting some bumper stickers? And then are we going to start limiting some social media posts? And I think it just goes on and on and on unless we have set boundaries. So unless it's either no personalized license plates or all of them are allowed. And personally, I would stand with more no personalized license plates because I think it's a really dangerous area. Um, otherwise, it's too dangerous to start restricting those and then restricting restricting free speech and then going down that path and censoring free speech and then it's just too dangerous for me so i would stand with Dallin with no personalized license plates because the state is involved of course we can't we can't censor bumper stickers that's you know you can do whatever you want with the bumper sticker but you're saying because the state is involved you've had none yes that's your sense yeah um uh as the time is moving by so quickly i'm going to unless you have more more comments i'm going to change topics um I read a fascinating article about your generation, Generation Z, as it's sometimes called, or the iGen. How do you refer to your generation, may I ask? Do you call it Generation Z? How do you refer to it? Gen Z. Gen Z. Okay. Um, And this particular article was talking about the power that your generation feels, sometimes expressed in activism. 
because your generation, unlike some other generations, has actually experienced a degree of real power at this early stage in your lives. You've been able to express yourselves, to have a voice, to have an effect on things, including legislation and other things, at a young stage in your life. Um, and I want to know if you've felt that power. Have you felt that power, Dallin? You know, I, I think this just comes down to the idea of like what what you know what's different about generations and how that all that all goes down. You know, I certainly feel the desire and the duty to try and influence the world around me for the better, right? You know, and prefacing with that, I think most of my generation is the same. I think most of any generation actually would be the same. The reason I think this is different is because I think our generation, you know, we're sometimes called the iGen, right? Because of all the access we have to technology, and along with that technology comes information. You know, I, I, I love looking into to different generations and the differences they have. And the biggest differences I see are like how much exposure they have to these events. You know, our generation has been shaped by so, so much happening. And not only just that happening, but it being a part of our everyday lives because we have so much more access to the news through the things we do every day. You know, whether that's social media or actually reading the news. So I think, you know, one part of the reason this is happening with our generation is the information that we have such easy access to, the knowledge we have. And then second, I think I think the reason we have greater influence is because it's a lot easier to stand out among the youth today. You know, I think it's interesting. The expectations for youth have just kind of trended very, very, very downwards over the last, you know, century or whatever. I mean, I mean, back in the day, you know, 16 years old, you were running a house on your own. You had a job. You're looking to get married, stuff like that. And nowadays, you know, 16 years old, barely trust you to touch a car, right? You know, expectations have surely dropped just a little bit for the age. Why do you think that is? No, there's a whole bunch of literature on this. I'd recommend the book Do Hard Things to anyone who wants to, like, look into that further. It's by, um, you know, two teenage boys, you know, were kind of fighting back against this idea Do of expectations. hard things. Yes. Okay, thank you. Continue. Yeah, and, and, and the idea behind that, I think as the expectation drops, I think people are more and more willing to listen to the people who are like, hey, I'm going to stand out amongst this expectation, you know, like – and refuse to be defined by that. And it makes those people just so much more of a standout, so much more access and so much more opportunity because they are so different. So, you know, with that in mind, I think it's the information we have. I think it's the expectations changing. And I just think it's it's a little bit of, you know, maybe maybe the people aren't so different now. It's just the circumstances. Mm-hmm. What do you say, John? Honestly, I think it's really important that everyone should have a voice. And I, I feel like my generation is can be just as active as any other generation, that we need to listen to every voice because every person should be speaking up, should be, act, should be um, active about issues that they care about. And it doesn't matter what, what generation you're born in. If you care passionately about something, then get up and do something about that. And I don't care if you're 50 years old, 15 years old, or 5 years old. If you care about something, then get up, get your, your voice voice be heard um, and talk to those who can make a difference and you can make a difference by speaking out and by being active about issues that you care about. That that is an impassioned uh, plea and beautifully spoken. May may I ask, have you always had, I mean, at what stage in your life, now you're only a, a teenager now, a junior in high school, but at what point did you have, did you know you had a voice? I think it started when I was really young. Um, my parents have always been involved in politics, and they, they? they passed that on to me. Um, they're, they're still very involved in politics, and I've started to go along with them. I've gone to city council meetings. I've spoken. I've gone to the state legislature. I've you've talked gone, to my representatives. You've spoken at a city council meeting? Yes, I have. On what topic, may I ask? 
Um, it was actually our city was going to put up a water tower, um, and so we had to go up. And I, I was talking to my mom about this, and we decided what we wanted to be said. Um, and then we went up and we were vocal, and we we made what we wanted to be done vocal and made sure that our representatives knew what their people wanted from them, which yeah. is really important in today's society. Bravo, John, and bravo to your parents for developing this voice and and also the belief that your voice is important in you from such a young age. And thank you for that plea. Uh, over to you, Maribel. Generation Z really excites me, and it also concerns me in some ways. Um, it's really exciting to me to know that the youth of my day really care about the world and they care about the things that are happening. Like it's a regular thing for my friends to discuss politics or to discuss current events. What is concerning to me is an attitude that I think my generation has adopted. And when it comes to activism, the key word for me is persuasion. But I think for most of my generation, the key word is demanding. Um, and I've seen this pattern and this trend among the youth of my day is that they really villainize people who disagree with them or who are not standing on the same points they are. And they're not willing to listen to the other side. They're not willing to listen to the other picture. And that is concerning to me because I do want change to happen and I want to change the world. I want to do big things. But I think to really facilitate change, the people who do that are maybe not even sometimes necessarily the people who are the most passionate about change, but the people who are willing to listen and who are willing to compromise and who see everyone as a person. And I think that's something that my generation is lacking in a little bit. Now, this is of concern to me, Mirabella, because this is the concern in my generation. I'm a baby boomer, so I'm old enough to be your grandparent. (laughs) Um, But this inability to hear respectfully an opposing point of view and speak uh, and listen, genuinely listen, is a challenge for those of us born in the 60s. Somehow that has been lost over the last few decades. I was sort of counting on you to show us the way to listen and, and be respectful of each other's opinions um, so, yes, I'm going to need you all to develop this skill if you don't have it, because th- that is something we will need your generation to lead out on. Some of your parents and your grandparents, I apologize for. I apologize. We have lost that skill. We are trying to regain it, but many of us have lost it. I apologize for that. We should have done better in leading you on that uh, in that regard. Um, the time is flying by. I have two quick more. Oh, did you have just something else to add? Please, Dallin. I just wanted to say, like, I'm no expert protester or anything like that. But I do have a few, like, just my advice is don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. <laughs> right? You know, some, sometimes, like, so easy in those, you know, protests, results, activists, whatever, to, like, get angry at, at something, and, you know, even a generation, and write them off entirely instead of focus on the issue. And, and so I guess that's just my thought on it. You know, find where you stand and stand there firmly, you know, like Clayton Christensen says, all that. But don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Thank you. Thank you. And there's always more to learn. Even at my age and older, there's always more to learn. Um, may I ask you, uh, other than your parents, because I, I know you are all respectful young people, I would likely say your parents. Other than your parents, who inspires you, Dallin? You know, there's a lot of people who I, I really look up to in my life. Um, you know, I, I have some teachers who have really influenced me in my life, my scoutmaster, um, a whole lot. 
and, and you know, like even my like some of my uncles have been very influential in my life, just giving me the sort of people to look up to, to to model myself after, and say, you know, I, I want to be like that. So, you know, there's a long list of people in my life who inspire me, but really, it's just the sort of people who like who have, who have a firm handle on their life. You know, kind of steering their own ship through the the seas of life are the people I really look up to. Thank you. That's a wonderful list. What about for you, Mirabella? Probably one of the people who really inspires me the most beyond my parents is my best friend. She's really amazing. And the thing that really inspires me about her is that she is constantly striving to be a better person. And she's so diligent at improving herself and trying to figure out the things in her life that she can change and improve and become better. And that is such an inspiration to me because it shows so much humility and it shows me how I want to live my life. I always want to be living my life constantly seeking after goodness and progressing. And she is such an example to me of that. And I'm honestly so blessed to know and have many peers who are like that. And it's really amazing to know such good friends and people who care about those things. That's beautiful. And we're so affected by the people that we spend time with. Our friends are so influential on the quality of our lives. So that's beautiful. What about for you, John? Yeah, for me, I have had some honestly really awesome teachers and mentors in my life. Like like Sam Martineau, um, Mark Orton, and Zach Mortensen. I just got to say thank you so much, you guys, because you have changed my life for the better. And for me, the kind of person that I look up to as a mentor is someone who understands that investing in the Youth is an investment for themselves, and it's an investment um, in our future as as uh, as the human species. To be honest, that giving back um, to people who are growing up now is never a waste of time. And you've made a difference in my life, and I know that people like that will continue to make a difference for generations on. Beautiful, beautiful, well said. Um, we're going to walk out the door here in just a couple of minutes, but may I ask you a frivolous question before we do? <laughs> um, is Valentine's Day a big deal to your generation? I just want to know. I, I know that you're maybe perhaps too young for me to even ask this question. Mirabella, is, is Valentine's Day a big deal for a, a junior in high school? Uh, honestly, Valentine's Day has been a big deal for me since I was like seven. Really? Um, <laughs> I am a hopeless romantic. I will put that right out there. And ever since I was like seven, I have journal entries that are like, it's Valentine's Day and my true love hasn't come and brought me flowers and I'm desperate and alone and the world is dark and gloomy. So, you know... I, Hopefully one day I'll grow out of it, but why? That's the truth. You know, I mean, if that is something that brings you joy, and and rom- romanticism has been criticized, and I I don't know if if that is a valid criticism, but if romanticism is something that brings you joy, and you find someone with whom you can share that, then perhaps there is no criticism necessary. I wish you good luck with that, and I hope. Thanks. I hope you have- <laughs> Honestly, I mean, I my husband and I have uh, enjoy rom- he buys me roses every every year on Valentine's oh, Day that's so sweet and has for decades and I, I even when we were you know very short on money I would say please honey don't spend money on roses they die in three days and he would still do it so it's just it's just the nature of how some people feel about that so anyway what is Valentine's Day anything for you may I ask Dylan uh, I, I think there's a Studio C sketch that illustrates the idea of Valentine's Day very well you know I'll respect Valentine's Day Valentine's Day I think it's great. I think it's, you know, fun, whatever. I just think it just creates this, well, I guess the story that best illustrates this is my brother. You know, he had to go to the store of Valentine's Day, you know, not for himself. <laughs> but, you know, there's this illustration of just like, 
all the poor lost men wandering through the store <laughs> trying to figure out what it is that they can do to sincerely express themselves. <laughs> and it's just a really hard situation. And to me, that's just like the saddest thing because they're all trying to be so sincere. And, you know, hats off to them. Great job, but also it's a really tough spot, and I'm sorry. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. I get, there's too much pressure. Yeah. There's too much pressure. I mean, I just to tell you from a woman who's been receiving gifts for, for you know, for 35 years or whatever it's been, I want to remove that pressure. Maybe some women do want to put pressure on it. I, I, I want to remove that pressure. I, I've never wanted my husband to feel pressure. I, I, a kind word for me would be absolutely more than any gift ever received. So there's, there's my two cents. What about for you, Tom? You know, honestly, I, I think there needs to be like a college class on <laughs> what to do on Valentine's Day for like your significant other. I, I just have no idea. I'm single. I'm available if anyone's out there. Um, but and this is a fine looking young man. I, I mean, I just tell you, I'm very qualified. I think we need to recognize like singles awareness day. Like I'm concerned about this. This is a problem for me. Um, but no, honestly, like like Mirabella, I can totally respect that. I think Valentine's is great. I kind of wish I had a Valentine. <laughs> now here's another thing. I sort of because I remember during many of the years that I was single, I would feel pressure on Valentine's Day. Everybody's so in love. It's stressful. Like honestly, and like, I wasn't in love, and I felt left what out. What am I supposed to do? I I I don't even know. But. Yeah, the yeah, six-hour pride and totally prejudice is a that. great Valentine's Day <laughs> option. So for you know, is, are, they, are the jazz playing on on Friday night? Maybe it'd be a good jazz night. I don't know. I'm just saying. so so. Yeah, I hear that I, that it can be a little stressful during that time of your life. There'll be plenty of years for for buying flowers. Um, thank you for sharing that, though. I do appreciate that for all three of you. I just you, you're wonderful. Please come back and see me again, all three of you. This is uh, through their eyes here on KSL News Radio.